Welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. And I'm delighted to have uh, so many people here and so many uh, through our website as well to, have, uh, to listen to this in conversation with Yvette Cooper. Yvette is, is as you know, MP for Normanton, Pontefract and Castleford and is chair of the Home Affairs Committee, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. She has, of course, held a number of posts in, in the Cabinet, including Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, and has held posts in the Shabbat Cabinet, including Shadow Home Secretary. Um, Yvette, thank you very much indeed for joining us at what are not thank quiet you. times. Thank you all for braving as well the uh, flotilla of trucks outside for our next door neighbour, the Foreign Secretary, <laughs> having, having a normal, calm day. Um, let's, let's kick off right away with where we are on one of the things your committee has been looking at, immigration. The referendum made a, a, a former statement about that. It's obviously one of the most heated aspects of the debate about Brexit. Where do you think we are? So I think we all know that immigration is immensely important for Britain and that it's been part of our history and our culture for many years. It's also immensely important to our economy and has an impact on community cohesion, local identity, national identity and so on. My um, concern and I think the committee's concern, we decided to do um, the report that's recently, recently concluded on, on immigration was that the debate on immigration, however, has been a hugely polarised one. The national debate has been immensely polarised. That um, it's tended to often be a very sort of divided and, and often oversimplified debate on immigration. That public concern about immigration as an issue has risen uh, steadily. It was clearly an issue um, behind a lot of the um, Brexit debate that we had. And also that the polarisation around immigration, the immigration debate, is also has an impact on whether or not we can get the Brexit divide to heal in future as well. So um, what we wanted to know as part of our inquiry was, is it possible to build consensus on immigration? Is this in fact just a, you know, going to be a polarised debate indefinitely or can you actually start to build consensus? Which is why we did a very different kind of inquiry, why we worked with um, uh, British Future and Hope Not Hate, and they held citizens panels, 60 citizens panels across this the country. This a, a year and a bit ago. Yeah, so this was, we launched the inquiry just over a year ago, yeah. and uh, they've done a series of um, uh, panel inquiry, about pa citizens panels, yeah. debating and discussing detail of immigration policy all across the country, and we drew on that, and, and I can say, say a bit more about that, that process, but the, the conclusions that we drew from it and that they drew as a result of the, the work that they'd done was that actually there is a lot more common ground than you'd think and that most people think that look immigration is important but they want to know that it's been controlled and managed they want reassurance that the system is effective they have different views on different kinds of immigration and there's a lot of concern around the impact but it's, um, it's a much more complex view than is often reported in the polarised thing. And also that, uh, in the words of British Future, most people are balancers. Most people don't think that immigration is all good, that immigration is all bad. Most people don't have the polarised views. Actually, there's a lot of common ground. But the problem is the current system and the current national debate tend to polarise it, tend to oversimplify it, and undermine trust in the system. So we're not actively building that consensus and we're not as a result getting the best policies on immigration either. Did you find a lot of support in that for controlling European immigration specifically? 
Yes, yeah, so the, we haven't looked specifically yet mm. at what the Brexit um, options might be, and that's the, the next part of our inquiry. We looked much more widely, partly because we felt that too often, at the moment, the focus is just on um, EU migration mm. options, mm. whereas actually um, some of the debate around immigration is around the system much more widely. So we wanted to look more broadly first. Concerns people have around uh, EU migration are, are, ver- are actually quite sort of varied. So, um, again, I think there's been a lot of support for EU citizens who are here and working to have all of their same citizens' rights uh, and support for that, but also concerns about um, a system of free movement that seems to not have controls as part mm. of it. And the issue about control came up a lot mm. in the debates and a lot in the, the discussions mm. um, that British Future had. Um, and so uh, there were some discussions that British Future had specifically about the interrelationship and options on um, EU migration. But we're going to look at that as part of our next inquiry. We haven't looked at that yeah. In so, some detail. So, for this in, the, one. in the part that you've done so far, did yep. you come to conclusions about what those controls should should look like? So, the recommendations that we um, had were. First of all, that you need to completely transform the way in which you make policy on immigration. Uh, that there has to be much more public involvement. There has to be much more robust evidence and analysis. And, uh, and also a much more sensitivity to looking at different kinds of immigration. Uh, we proposed having an annual migration report in a bit the same way that you have a budget day report that um, should be informed by proper evidence and analysis from the Migration Advisory Committee, a bit like the budget is informed by evidence and analysis, not just from the Treasury, but also from the independent OBR. So we'd have a much more independent Migration Advisory Committee rather than it only being limited by what it's been commissioned by the Home Office to do. It should have a rolling uh, evidence that you have much more um, accurate data and and information underpinning it and also an obligation to build consensus and to challenge misinformation as part of the process. In terms of then the, uh, and the, oh, what this annual migration report would do is not just set out what immigration targets and controls should be, but also action around skill shortages, around the interaction with the labour market, about what training measures might be needed, about the impact and uh, integration policies and what integration policies should be in different communities, about what support might be needed for public services in areas, for example, with high migration. So you'd put all of that together in um, a much wider um, kind of report each year. And then on the approach to the targets and controls, we, our recommendation was that the net migration target isn't working. It treats all immigration as the same. It um, also, it's clearly the government's not been able to meet it for very many years and even EU, uh, non-EU migration, which the government has control over, is uh, significantly higher than the target. Um, but particularly by treating all immigration as the same, actually it's not getting the right, Im- the right policies for the country and that instead there should be 
different kinds of um, targets or controls for different kinds of migration. In particular, you just shouldn't have students in a target for controlling or reducing migration at all because international students is clearly bringing huge benefits to the country. And then there should be different approaches to high-skilled, to low-skilled. Um, we also found continued support for refugees and for our international humanitarian obligations. Mm. Um, but again, people want to know that the system is robust mm. and effective as well. well. We might come back to some of those points. And the idea of having, if you like, an OBR for uh, migration is very interesting. It's one of the things the Institute looks at a lot, of whether you can uh, perhaps construct an institution like that when the politics has got really toxic and you want something to uh, um, dispassionately uh, comment on it. I might come back to that. But just on the, I, I just want to dig in a bit to this, this, this sense of uh, different kinds of targets for different things. Was it your view, looking at all this work, that the UK should be much more explicit about needing high-skilled people, needing a certain number of low-skilled people, and, and, and so on? That it should really be driven by that kind of economic yeah. um, so analysis? On, um, on uh, migration for employment, we've recommended much more um, analysis and evidence around the relationship between immigration and the labour market. That this should be a central issue, of a central place of work for the Migration Advisory Committee. That at the moment there really isn't robust enough evidence on this, but also that you should make it um, explicit. What we found from the public debates is that there was a lot of support for student migration, but also a lot of support around high-skilled migration. A lot of concern about low-skilled migration, and in particular, low-skilled migration being exploited to undercut wages and jobs, and that came up particularly in certain areas. It was really interesting. Certain areas, areas of the country. Certain areas of the country, yeah. So um, Chesterfield, um, where, which is, I think, where the Sports Direct um, mm -hmm. uh, a base near there, um, Northampton, or a couple of other areas. Interestingly, I think areas where there are a lot of distribution centres, where that's quite a significant employer. So I think there is a concern about certain sectors being seen, or individual employers in particular areas, being seen as using recruitment, particularly through agencies, using recruitment from abroad to undercut terms and conditions, and, and so on. Now, somebody said to me when we had a, a discussion about this, um, in, a, in a different forum, well, you know, um, lots of the, the cumulative sum of a lot of anecdotes isn't the same as data. Mm -hmm. And clearly it's not. However, individual anecdotes in particular areas and communities can have a very big impact on the politics and also you know, can be evidence about what's happening in that, yeah. that area. So, um, so in terms of, yeah, so going back to your kind of original question, does that mean therefore you should have much more robust analysis of different sectors mm. and also what kinds of migration is needed? We think yes, and you should also link that to your skills and training plan. So, for example, on something like you know, nursing, we clearly need continued support to recruit nurses from abroad to support the National Health Service. But there is a pretty big question for us about what are the domestic training plans that mean that have made the NHS so dependent on overseas recruitment, given the impact that that also has on health training and recruitment in other countries that we are recruiting from. As well, mm. now, I, can see, I can see as, as far as nurses go that uh, putting a lot of emphasis on training uh, might be a good um, uh, and a politically astute argument. But the politics gets difficult, doesn't it, with the the low skilled 
in particular. Um, people, you know, as uh, one hand you've said, people around the country say, look, this is undercutting wages and so on. On the other hand, you've got the hospitality sector, you've got some parts of the care uh, profession, the, the less skilled, uh, you've got the agricultural sector saying, look, we need those people. Yeah. And um, I was wondering whether you had come to any new conclusions about what to do with it. Yeah. So um, we took evidence, uh, particularly from the agricultural sector as well, and um, had probed there. And clearly, and they gave us examples. For example, uh, they gave us an example of a, a training and recruitment program that they had tried to run um, to, uh, to get people locally um, to join and had only been able to recruit a tiny proportion of the places that were available um, locally and therefore um, uh, had been reliant on recruiting from abroad. And in the, again, going back to the, the citizens' panels, the, um, actually there was a lot of recognition that something like seasonal agricultural work is going to be very difficult to recruit mm. from local communities and therefore that might be an area where there might be continued demand for overseas migration. And, and bear in mind, when people talk about it, they often would, it, it wasn't simply saying we, we need no immigration or we need no, it was more of a, this is about the kind of migration, this is about the way in which it might be controlled, this is about what impact that it has. So what we, we recommended was that on low-skilled migration, that the Migration Advisory Committee should specifically look at sectors with high level of low-skilled migration and how far that is because this is a sector like seasonal agricultural work that there is always going to be difficulties in terms of local recruitment or whether it was a sector where issues were around labour market regulation or exploitation and whether it was having an impact on terms and conditions or whether it was simply a fast changing sector where there might be short term levels of recruitment but then it might change over time but that the problem is there is no real robust evidence base about actually what is happening sector by sector around low-skilled migration and we should have that evidence to inform the kinds of uh, immigration policy framework that you then put in place as part of the annual migration report. Mm. That takes time. We've got Brexit, we've got a timetable, whatever it is, is, is clearly rather demanding. Um, how does the government get something together in terms of a new immigration regime that is going to meet that timetable? So I think the government could move to having an annual migration report very quickly. Because which, which, which would say how many people are coming in, but would it say it would, I think what, it would what do, we need as well? What it, it would start to do is actually start to be a bit honest about the fact that we don't know the answers to all of these questions, but that you're putting in place a system to get evidence in yeah. order to do so. That, um, uh, I mean, the committee didn't make recommendations about specific individual controls. What we made recommendation about was what the overall framework should look like and what should be the process, both involving public consultation and robust evidence gathering in order to get to them. So it's clearly going to take some time um, for the government to both set out and then consult on what their uh, views are around the EU migration. And I mean, we've been waiting for this white paper for rather a long time. So, you know, it's very hard for us in the select committee to know what their proposed timetable is going to be um, on that. But I think some of the wider issues about how you start building consensus on immigration, how you start to look at issues around integration and impact alongside uh, immigration, replacing the net migration targets. You know, all of those are things they could do. They don't have to wait for the Brexit negotiations. 
mm. to actually have a, um, a broader, more honest discussion about how mm. you build consensus on immigration more widely. Mm. I understand that. But um, there still is the, the demand of Brexit there. What, what are the procedures that we're going to need to have in place by the time Brexit comes in? So, to, to on, the yeah. so yeah. on the, um, the Brexit uh, process, so we are, we've uh, got two um, uh, inquiries underway at the moment. One is looking at immigration delivery around Brexit, and the other we are just about to start, which will look at what the policy options might be. So the delivery one is simply looking at what has the government so far set out, and do they have the capacity to deliver it, do they have the systems in place, and how is that going to work? And is that about border controls, or is that? I mean, you've done some work on that. It's look, yeah, it's looked, well. uh, We've yes. looked at border controls issues already, yeah. and but this is also looking at the proposals for registration, for example. So the government has put forward proposals for registering um, EU citizens who are here, and also for having a registration system for people who come to the UK after Brexit Day um, as well, and. The evidence we have taken, and we haven't come to conclusions yet as a committee, we haven't discussed our conclusions at the committee yet, but we have heard a lot of evidence about a lot of concerns about exactly how this registration system is going to work. The government has said they intend this to be um, a simple and easy process. We heard a lot of concerns about what capacity is needed and the recruitment plans and the quite limited recruitment plans that the government has come forward with, um, and also what will happen in terms of the potential for errors in the system. We know, for example, the government's uh, immigration enforcement around a hostile environment um, for non-EU migration has quite high, worryingly high levels of errors within the system at the moment. Um, so are there, is there a new approach for EU migration going to be prone to the same level of errors, the same level of delays, capacity problems and so on? Because that obviously would cause very substantial problems, both for, for citizens who are here, but also for uh, the labour market and mm. for employment as well. What about if there's no deal? Uh, if there's no deal, I does, mean, does it, it I think this? it's, yeah, the, if there's no deal, look, the, the economic consequences of no deal, I think, are a complete nightmare. The yeah. security consequences of uh, there being no deal are immensely serious. And I don't think people have yeah. focused on this. Yeah. I mean, security yet. hasn't come into the debate anything like as much as and even, in, even the economics, which has been um, extraordinarily absent as, as well. But anyway, so Exactly. And tomorrow is. we're actually taking evidence on um, security issues around Brexit. Yeah. We're hearing evidence from the minister as well um, and I think that's partly because on the security aspect there are shared objectives and there's a sense of yep. that there is a consensus here and consensus with um, the EU about what the objectives should be however the complexities around security policy around data sharing around our role in Europol and so on uh, you know, actually mean that there is a, a big risk, as Julian King, the um, commissioner, put it, that just because everybody wants something to happen doesn't mean to say that it will, because if it becomes so complicated and hard to get resolved in mm. time, and certainly if there is no deal, mm. that is disastrous. I mean, that is really serious in terms mm. of... Can you just um, take us into this a bit? Because you, you, I mean, your, yeah. your pitch has been, hasn't it, for some months, look, this is nothing like as simple as people think it, yeah. it might be. Yeah, what, I think that's what, right. What, so, what's, what's the kind of complexity? So, for example... Um, uh, you know, in, on what basis is uh, data going to be legally shared 
between mm. the EU or between other EU criminal institutions and the UK. And of course, intelligence sharing will continue. So we would expect if, if there is a, a threat of a terrorist incident anywhere in the UK or in Europe, of course, intelligence agencies will find the way to share information. Of mm. course, they will, um, and they will put uh, protecting life and limb first. But However, if there's no way to legally share information, the risk is you then can't prosecute, you then can't actually take criminal proceedings or that people effectively escape justice and continue to be a danger, continue to be a risk. There's so much cross-border crime cooperation now, whether you're dealing with modern slavery, whether you are dealing with online crime, whether you're dealing with uh, international economic crimes, uh, but also public safety issues. So many of those things where we have and we rely on international cooperation Cooperation, but particularly cooperation across EU borders, mm. but that needs legal underpinning. Mm. You need a legal basis for the way in which the police work together, for the way in which they share information, and also for our access to some of those crucial Schengen information system databases about just criminal records in other parts mm. of Europe and so on. Mm. So, and there are, because the legal basis for that data sharing is different if we are outside the EU mm -hmm. because the arrangements for third parties, for third countries, um, often in, on some bases need to pass a higher test for data protection for, under some of the um, EU procedures. All of that needs to be resolved and to be argued out mm -hmm. and there has to be the time to do it. Mm -hmm. And if this issue is seen as a low priority because everybody's concentrating on the areas which we know are contested around single market, customs union, free movement, all of those sorts of things, the danger is we just get timed out um, and that could have serious security consequences. Mm -hmm. What does cyber mean in general for resources needed and police and, and home officers and so on? I mean, the police are very straightforward in saying, OK, here's a, here's a list of conventional um, uh, reported crimes. And then if you want us to add cyber on top, that's as much again in terms yeah. of individual incidents. And some of them are obviously extremely uh, expensive ones, if, if you like. What, what, what are we looking at going forward? Well, uh, crime patterns are changing. So... We still have, we have real concerns about um, violent crime rising and about some of the, the traditional crimes that the police have always dealt with, um, issues around um, neighbourhood policing um, and the impact on, of the decline in neighbourhood policing on some of the prevention work, gang violence and so on. So mm. some of those areas continue to be the same concerns they always have been. There are also new pressures for police in really important areas that have become uh, a much greater priority and rightly around the protection of those who are vulnerable and that might be around modern slavery, it might be around um, domestic violence, it might be around child sexual exploitation. But added to all of those, we then have this new pressure about online crimes of different forms. That some of that will be the most serious sort of cyber security threats, mm -hmm. but it may also be about online fraud and the impact that that has. We heard evidence from one police force that of the online fraud reports that they get, 95% do not get investigated. Now, 
that means you know the the impact for that on on people's well-being actually is very substantial and if traditional criminal gangs end up increasingly shifting online because that is where it is easiest to commit crimes mm -hmm. the damage that this does to the economy but also to those uh, to families who get defrauded and you know there's a real danger that we don't see mm -hmm. online crimes and online abuse as being uh, the say as being as damaging as it actually is and is your committee going to be calling for something in the way of resources? Yes, yeah, so we're doing an inquiry at the moment into policing for the future, and it looks at these different kinds of changing patterns of crime and threat and the way in which policing needs to respond. It does uh, raise real questions for the existing model of 43 force policing, because for many forces, the chances of the victim and the perpetrator of an online crime both being within the same force area actually are pretty low and so therefore the working across force boundaries becomes all the more important and raises questions actually about complete changes to the structure around policing. We also, I think, once we've looked at the policing side, also want to look much more widely at online security and safety. Um, and uh, you may have seen some of the work we've been doing looking at um, social media and hate crime, for example, and what more social media companies need to do to tackle extremism and abuse on their platforms, um, where frankly, I think there is an awful lot more they can do. Mm. Let me ask you one final thing before we go to questions. I think there will be a lot of questions. Something we talked about, we talk about quite a lot at the Institute of whether we're coming to the end of what has been kind of 20, 30 years of, I won't call it agreement, but a degree of consensus around the centre ground and around some technocratic solutions. Those are not the same thing. And whether we're now moving into an, um, an era of, of much more extreme politics on either wing. And that might mean that some of the um, solutions we've all been, you know, taken as a settled ground over the past uh, decades might be um, rethought. I, I think you remember we were talking beforehand about the independence of the Bank of England and so on. But whether it, it feels to you as if we're in a, you know, a new era of debate on that kind of thing, I think there is a strong public demand for change and a strong sense that the current systems are not working, are not um, facing up to some of the fast-changing uh, issues that the country faces. Um, certainly that the, uh, since the financial crisis, that issues around widening inequality have not been properly addressed, that a lot of people quite rightly feel like the system isn't working for them. They've still seen no pay increase for a long time. Those sorts of economic pressures, I think, are important. I think you also see communities feel a real frustration that the system doesn't seem to be working. If you live in a town, what you've seen is very often seen cities grow, seen new job growth uh, in cities, but actually seen jobs in towns disappear and um, a sense of community being undermined in town. So some of those divides the existing system isn't dealing with. And actually on immigration, you know, immigration has been, going back to where we started, has mm. been one of those issues that has divided people and they mm. sort of see nothing seems to be happening to address it. We saw uh, concern rise. The um, Labour government's response obviously was was often not to, to talk about it and to debate it. The coalition and then the Conservative government's response has been 
to debate it and to talk about it, but not in a way that actually addressed any of the concerns and simply created a sort of a target that actually raised expectations that something was going to be sorted and then did the opposite. So in all of those things, there's been a sense of frustration that things aren't happening. So I think nobody should be complacent about this. There's a huge demand for change, and rightly, and we do need, I think, to embrace that and say, actually, there needs to be a whole load of changes right across the country in the way that we debate things, in the policies that we have, um, in the reforms to the way things work right across the country. That doesn't mean to say, however, that this is therefore becomes just a polarised debate with people shouting at each other and that's where we're going to be because, again, the evidence from our work around immigration was that actually you can build consensus around the kinds of reforms that are needed, that, that it's, the debate doesn't have to be polarised, it only becomes polarised if you don't work at it and you don't try and build, actively try and build consensus, actively try, I suppose, in, um, in Joe Cox's words, to look at what we ha- where we have more that's in, that we have in common mm. than that which divides us. And people often assume that... Um, somehow looking for consensus and looking for what we have in common means defending the status quo and it really doesn't Mm. it is Mm. possible to look for what we have in common and to to try and bridge divides and to deal with polarization and also have some quite radical reforms for the future thanks very much on that note let's have some questions over here first one if you'd like to say who you are always appreciate it thanks Hi there, Adam Payne from Business Insider. Um, obviously a big element of immigration policy in the past and going forward is the single market. Uh, there are MPs in Labour like Chuck Ramuna, Alison McGovern, etc. who are vocal that Britain should stay in the single market and are becoming increasingly frustrated with the position of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell on the issue. Um, I'm just inter- interested for your take on the single market, especially in the context of freedom and movement. But also do you think this debate is reaching a point that could tear the party in two? So, I'm um, obviously speaking here today as the chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, and one of the things that we are going to be looking at is what the EU migration reforms are going to be and what the options are going to be, and that will include looking at how that interacts with the single market. So, I'm going to just slightly, just you know, just be honest with. Look, I'm speaking from a slightly different position um, on this because we are actually looking at what the options might be and how we might build a consensus in terms of our um, select committee and a cross-party basis on this. In terms of what should happen next in terms of the the single market, the customs union and what the different options are, um, just sort of separate them out. So on the customs union, I think the the CBI case yesterday reinforced the idea that of course we should be trying to stay in the customs union and um, we really need a strong customs union deal and this is about Yorkshire manufacturing, this is about Uh, businesses right across the country that depend on that relationship with the EU and depend on that trade with the EU. When it comes to the single market, I would love us to be able to stay in the single market and have all of the benefits of the single market. I also argued before the um, uh, referendum that we should also have reforms to the free movement from within the EU and I think there are a whole series of areas where you, we would should have been arguing for reforms to free movement and to changes. In terms of what that interaction is now and what might be possible in terms of the precise relationship between the single market and free movement that's what the committee is going to be looking at so you know, I understand you're a legitimate question but I'm just going to qualify it by the fact that I've got to chair a cross party committee 
committee which is going to look at exactly what those options are um, and I think this will end up being a, a central focus for the um, negotiations but I think the government's approach which was just to sort of rule out both the single market and the customs union I think was completely wrong and they haven't even explored what the different options might be of how you combine all of these and how you might possibly be able to to link these issues around the single market and the benefits that that brings to our economy with also the free movement issues and what the issues there might be and what kinds of reforms might be possible. They didn't even try to do that before just taking a, a position um, and ruling things out in the negotiations. Over here. Up towards the edge. And if anyone in the next door room, the overflow room, formerly known as the innovation room, would like to ask a question, I do stick your head around. Go ahead. Thank you. I'm Robert Hazel. A long time ago, I worked in the Immigration Department of the Home Office. I'm now an associate here of the IFG um, and in the Constitution Unit at UCL. And last year, the Constitution Unit organized a citizens' assembly on Brexit, which I suspect may have been rather similar to your citizens' panels that informed your inquiry. It met over two weekends in Manchester, and they spent two days out of the total four days discussing uh, what form immigration should take post-Brexit. Intriguingly, the conclusion they came to, which was unexpected, was that their preferred option was to remain within the single market, but to exercise more tightly the existing controls that the EU allows, but which aren't currently fully exercised. Uh, if we may, we'll send evidence into your second inquiry. It has, I think, potentially significant implications for the way that immigration is enforced. You spoke about public concern and public demand that it be more tightly enforced. Most people tend to think that means border controls. You will know, having looked into it, actually it means more effective controls after entry, enforced through employers, landlords, universities, bodies like the police, etc. Do you think the public are ready for that quite important change in terms of more effective enforcement once people are in the country? Um, we, we did a, a brief, it wasn't really a report, but we published a paper about, mm, uh, this time last year, maybe about um, 10 or 11 months ago, which just really drew together what the different policy options might be post-Brexit um, and or that the government might be looking at, um, which included... Uh, some of those sorts of things and also included other things ranging right through to the points-based system and so on. It didn't take a view on any of those policies or what um, the right policy approach might be. It simply um, set them out. Um, and I think one of the things we will do is to look more in more detail at those and therefore would very much benefit you know very much appreciate your um, uh, uh, evidence and and the conclusions that you came to I think there are um, and there are different views about what more you might be able to do within the existing system and within the existing rules there are different views about what the um, uh, the agreement that David Cameron came to with the EU as part of those negotiations actually meant and what more it might have allowed had that been um, uh, actually implemented. There are also different views about how much you can address some of the concerns that people have through labour market regulation rather than through immigration 
um, policy measures. Um, and I think the um, is the is this something that the public actually would welcome a debate on? Our experience from doing these, the working with British Future, was that there is huge appetite for an honest conversation about all of these options, and that people do want to have a, a detailed discussion about it, and to not simply um, have this as a centralised discussion that actually the Home Office doesn't really discuss it with anybody in terms of what happens on immigration policy, and there's a lack of consultation and a lack of open, honest debate. So I think there is a um, uh, an appetite. One of the things. Things that um, that I think it, it, it's. But is there an appetite for some of the? I mean, open, honest debate is, is one thing. But is there an appetite for some of the solutions, like asking employers or um, people renting out rooms and so on, to to uh, be part of the enforcement? Oh, I see. To having as part of the. Yes. Yes. So we've not looked point. at any of those options in terms of what the um, uh, what people might be interested in. One of the things, we've also not looked in detail at the British Future and Hope Not Hate um, evidence specifically on EU migration. So that is something that we will look at. We didn't for this inquiry because we were looking more broadly, but we will be sort of interrogating their analysis that more specifically on the EU migration options. So truth is I don't know. Um, and you might as well be honest about stuff where we haven't looked at the evidence in detail yet. Well, interesting point, and thanks very much, because I'm sure you're right. There's a, there's a desire for people uh, you know, that someone should control this. On the other hand, it, it depends when you get down to the methods of control, whether people are up for it. Um, who, who, who else? Okay, we've got lots of hands right, right here, and then coming to the doorway. Um, Richard Evans, a, a niche market headhunter in the city and a member of Labour business, and I think we could all agree if Yvette, in my view, was leader of the opposition, the whole tone of this debate would be very, very different. Just a very personal point. Yvette, John John Curtis came up with irrefutable evidence from the referendum and the election that what we're really talking about is a cultural qualifications divide. So I don't know whether your committee, how you would respond to this. He said, not the better educated, the more qualifications you have, and the younger you are, under 45, you're probably going to think that actually immigration is not really a problem. But if you're 55 plus, with not many qualifications, and that age and older, then you are very, very worried. How do we deal with this, that maybe this is a cultural divide and that actually may disappear when people of my age and older are no longer? So we, um, this is the evidence that we took. We also, we did take evidence around um, uh, from academics who looked at things like the British Social Attitude Survey and so on. So we did find uh, um, uh, sort of differences by age, um, uh, differences, you know, on uh, you know other other kind of divides around immigration. But the um, the the interesting thing was just when you get into the detailed discussions and when you start talking about different kinds of immigration you get more consensus so as long as that discussion is simply do you think immigration is good for Britain versus bad for Britain or a sort of polarised question then you're also likely to get a polarised response by age and so on but however when you have a discussion about different kinds of migration that the country might need or the different impact of migration and so on you get still get more consensus even notwithstanding different attitudes 
that there might be um, depending on people's background or circumstances. The other thing I think is interesting is that in terms of some of the um, the analysis that's been done about the um, uh, the referendum response and the debate and so on is that areas that have seen a quite significant increase in migration, even if it was from a low level to start off with, the areas that have seen significant increases um, were particularly likely to vote leave. And I'm, I can't remember the, the, whose, whose research this was. Not I, including London, though, which has seen a big increase, yeah, from, it was, albeit from a high level. It was... Um, uh, I, I now can't remember the source, but it was looking at areas where the, um, the percentage of... Um, uh, it, was, it was the sort of areas that had seen for, in, in the last 10 years might have seen a significant change, mm. but might have started for, so as a proportion of the, the level of migration from before and so on. Yeah, exactly. Right. So now that fits, however, it's going, you then get into question about what causes correlations and mm. so on, because I think there is also a wider issue about towns and cities mm. where... Um, uh, and actually this also fits with the age divide as well. So I do think that this is not just now, you have an issue where towns tend to have aging populations, cities tend to have younger populations. But I think that beyond the age issues, there are genuine economic divide issues facing towns and cities that have got nothing to do with migration, have got nothing to do with age, but are about the kinds of new jobs that are being created, the kinds of old jobs that are disappearing, where they are and the location of them, and the, the fact that you have a sense of uh, large communities, basically cities, have the, the, the diversity and the size to be able to cope with very fast changes in the economy, to be able to diversify, to be able to move into new markets, to be able to cope with a big services service sector and create those new jobs, whereas smaller communities and towns have uh, much less diversity in terms of skills and in terms of adaptability, so if things change fast, often don't have the resilience to therefore change in terms of their economic base and also may just not have sufficient of a market to be able to sustain particular kinds of jobs and particularly in the service sector as well. So if you live somewhere where you have seen your community, even if you are in a good job, you've seen your community seem to go into decline and that's not just about the town centre, it's about the kinds of jobs that are available, the kinds of services provided in that area, uh, you know, public services shrinking back in towns but still being sustained in cities as part of the austerity and I think you, you have a sense that your community, you're losing control of your own area and community and you want something to change. So I think that town-city divide is also underpins. I know this is real, I apologise for this being a tangent, but I do think this town-city divide is, and the economic difference between cities and towns is being underestimated as a cause of uh, some of the divides and the polarisation that we've seen and that some of the debates about immigration or debates about Brexit become some of the consequences whereas actually there's a deeper economic cause. Thank you. In the doorway, not to keep you standing up and then I'm coming right to the back. Um, Robert Wright from the Financial Times. I'm very struck listening to some of the evidence that's come out in the uh, inquiry about policing, how the traditional way that police forces could tell that they were succeeding is probably eroding. Uh, it used to be that if you basically kept a lid on violent crime, you felt like you were doing your job. With violent crime falling 
of, for various reasons and increasing proportion of cyber and far more calls to the police being nothing to do with crime. I just wonder what, what do you think the police are for and how does a police force tell it's doing a good job? Really good question. Thank you. It's a very good question, um, and hopefully we will have the answer by the time we get to the conclude our Policing for the Future report. Um, I think the, you're right. The policing has been often been judged by volume crimes, not even some, simply about violent crime, but some of the volume crimes around burglary and car crime um, and so on. And what I think you're now seeing is that even though some of those volume crimes, like car crime, have um, have fallen, there is now a sort of growing anxiety about a lot of crimes that are not being investigated, about the huge pressures on the police and their ability to respond, and also about the different kinds of crimes um, and the, the threats to public safety um, that aren't being addressed. I think you do need... Um, uh, to look at how you how you measure support for for vulnerable people, the police have done a lot of work and continue to do a lot of work. Often because they're picking up the pieces where other services um, have left gaps. For example, around mental health. For example, around um, children in care who are at risk or who go missing. And the police are increasingly having to do more and more work on that. And it's immensely important. There are some people who argue that the police should be retreating from that kind of area and should instead simply be concentrating on traditional policing things rather than being doing that work around public protection because public protection isn't measured. I think the work around public protection is immensely important and has to actually be at the heart of what the police do because keeping communities safe was at the core of the British policing mission when British policing first started and has to remain central now. And it was when Theresa May was Home Secretary, she had a kind of mantra about you know it all being just about crime, just focus on crime. Actually, public protection is hugely important and needs to be central to the policing mission for the future. Was your question also about the kind of online stuff, or were you mainly meaning the, the public protection and the... Um, I'm, sorry, I'm conscious I'm giving slightly long answers. I apologise. Yeah, no, no, um, I, I, was, I mean, the, the online stuff just feels a little bit different, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it feels, I mean, one online crime, you know, and I've had my credit card details stolen, somebody bought some stuff in the pharmacy, I stopped it, stopped it. It didn't feel the same as if I'd been mugged, but it counts in the crime statistics the same way. So I just wonder how you. Yeah. Well, plus also, but there's a real interesting thing as well about the impact. I mean, you know, having had similarly, you know, you have a credit card number defrauded. Actually, that can lead to a lot of further crimes. So it might be treated just as one crime because somebody took my credit card number, but then the then attempts to use it, if somebody then tries to use it to set up a PayPal account, somebody else tries to use it for something else, those numbers are then sold on through criminal networks extremely fast and so can have a knock-on impact on a whole series of other crimes as well. Um, I think there is a real problem that the... Um, uh, nobody has got to grips with the rapid escalation of crime um, and security threats online. The, the, the internet and the way it's developed wasn't developed with the crime prevention or public safety uh, at the forefront. It was just developed as an amazing, you know, amazing way for, um, for communications to flourish and for ideas to flourish. And there's been great strengths to that, but also very substantial risks. And if we don't get a grip of that very quickly, 
quickly, it's going to be extremely hard um, to do so and it's going to lead to all kinds of serious consequences. So I think we, that's part of the reason why we, although we are looking at policing for the future and what police should change, I think our intention will be to look much more widely at online safety and security and what the responsibilities are on, um, uh, you know, on the private sector, what the responsibilities are on um, uh, online providers um, as well, um, and not just what it is that the police can do to catch up. Thanks very much. Right at the back. Yep. Thank you, um, Artishanka, Open Europe. Um, I think you spoke very convincingly on the need to kind of create consensus and how we address this um, immigration question. It's one of the things that we've been focusing on too, and we produced um, a large-scale um, study on public attitudes to immigration very recently. Um, and one of the things we were struck by was that there was a majority, actually, for reforming the UK welfare system in order to address a lot of the public's concerns about immigration. And this was sort of twofold. There was, on, on the one hand, both Remainers and Leavers felt that increasing controls on migrants' access to the UK welfare system would reduce their concerns about immigration. And actually, a lot of the data that we gathered through local-level focus groups found that people were convinced by the argument that if you, if you tighten up the UK welfare system, you might encourage people from the local population back into work and reduce our reliance on immigration. I was wondering if this is something that your report has touched on or whether you think some of the solutions to the immigration question might lie in this sort of area. What we did look at was the principle of contribution and uh, we found um, the British Future reported that what often would come up in the, um, uh, the panel discussions very often was the issue around control would, would come up and whether or not the system was being managed, whether or not the, the, the system, anybody had a grip of the system, but contribution would also come up a lot and a sense of the importance of people contributing and the value that was accorded to immigration where it benefits the country and to the, the benefits that it can bring, um, uh, but uh, a concerns around if, if people, uh, fears around whether people were playing the system or whether there was, uh, the system was being undermined. So we, our recommendation was that the principle of contribution should be explicitly part of um, the annual migration report and should be one of the principles that should underpin it and in a clear way because clearly if, if the rules the rules are so complex as well that it's very hard for people to see whether or not contribution is a principle that underpins the um, immigration system or not. And you mean so, to, have, to have a sense of fairness? Yeah, about exactly. That. To have a sense of the, you, you don't get out before, without paying in in some sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and... Um, uh, and, and the, yeah, that should be one of the principles that, that should underpin it. Um, the interesting, I suppose, question about whether specific welfare reforms have any impact on the debate or not, I suppose, raises um, questions about the, the deal that David Cameron did, which supposedly had welfare reforms at the heart, but in the end didn't really get discussed very much during the uh, referendum process. And I don't know whether that was because the government concluded, having done that deal, that they didn't think it was going to have any impact on the public debate, or whether or not um, they thought that um, they just got distracted by talking about other things um, or not instead. We didn't look in any detail at the welfare system. We just sort of reflected the fact that some of those contributory issues came up. Great. Okay, who, who have we got? Um, 
two. Um, great, we've suddenly got three and someone in the doorway. Um, let's come. Do you want to take a group of questions at yes, once? Because yes. that might stop me ask, giving very long answers. Yeah, not Sorry. Let's, let's, I'm going to take in fact, all of these at once, which is four people. Go on. Uh, Gemma Tetlow from the Financial Times. Um, can I just ask, you, you said two of your recommendations were the need to get more public involvement in immigration policy making and the need for better evidence. Um, but you also acknowledged that many people anecdotally think that immigrants have had a bad impact on their lives, including through lowering wages. But then if you look at the economic evidence, actually, at best, that suggests there may have been a slight negative impact on wages for the low paid. So to what extent do you think policymakers need to challenge these sort of misconceptions in the public and as a sort of subsidiary question to what extent does that require greater honesty on the part of politicians to acknowledge that actually some of the things that people put down to immigration are actually failings in other areas of policy and not to do with immigration at all. Great, thanks. We've got that towards the back. Hi, my name is Zara Tief. I work in the Cabinet Officers Open Innovation Team. I was really happy to, to hear you say that we need to change the way we make policy, make it more citizen-focused. Um, what are your thoughts on how we actually do that? What does that practically mean for you? Okay, great. In the doorway. Uh, Jeremy Hughes from Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, your former department. Just I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Uh, Ministry of uh, Housing, Communities and Local Government, yeah, uh, in a personal capacity, obviously. Um, one of the things which was, has been striking about the, the kind of post-Brexit debate is it hasn't really moved on, and we're still talking about a referendum, we're still talking about on what basis we might leave, and there doesn't seem to be discussion about, for all the new freedoms and sovereignties, what do we want to do with them, and to work back from that to what kind of deal enables us to do those things that the, the country wants to do. There isn't, it doesn't seem to be very forward-looking, it still seems very process-based. Um, which I think talks to your point about the immigration debate being, uh, again, still overly polarised and not about, there hasn't been a debate about what kind of immigration system we want. And you do wonder where that debate could happen when most um, current affairs programmes, for example, will have somebody on one side of the argument, someone on the other side, have a pointless argument, and then say, well, you know, pick the bones out of that. Terrific. And right at the front. Hi, Jill Rush from the Institute for Government. Um, just a quick question, Yvette, you spend a lot of time looking at the Home Office. Are they the right people to lead migration policy for the future, given that they come out of such a control mentality? Are they the right people to have the sort of inclusive approach that balances economics with other factors, given that they're also possibly one of the least economically literate departments in Whitehall? <laughs> Welcome back from your holiday in <laughs> Australia, <laughs> Jill. Thanks very much. Okay, we have um, uh, wages and impact uh, and honesty uh, uh, about that. Uh, uh, what real changes in policy making? Um, and again, what are we what, what are we going to do about the deal and Brexit and Home Office? Right or completely wrong people? So it's Gemma's question at the beginning about. Um, uh, do you need, does this need to be a challenging debate as, as, as well as an honest one? Um, I think, look, the, part of the reason there is um, a lot of distrust of facts and figures and so on that are produced is actually because there are flaws and there are problems in the data and the evidence that's produced and also that there have been such problems in official estimates 
around migration over a long period of time. So whether that might be uh, estimates around um, transition, whether it might be estimates around what was going to happen with the net migration target, whether it might be um, lack of estimates around illegal migration, um, uh, whether it might be the accuracy of the um, uh, International Passenger Survey um, figures uh, and so on. So the, it's, the, the lack of having a robust evidence base actually then makes it also harder to challenge misinformation um, and concern as well. So we recommended a, a much more effective and, and extensive evidence base um, as well as then challenging misinformation or um, making sure that you have accurate information as part of that debate. Um, and I think some of the issues around what happens, particularly in the low-skilled section of the labour market, because that's, I think, where the real anxieties lie, and simply saying that, oh, well, there's some uh, economic surveys or analysis that shows that overall, in total, low-skilled migration benefits the total level of GDP for the country, actually doesn't address the kinds of concerns that people have in a particular area if they have, whether it's Sports Direct or a particular employer where the view locally is what's happening is there is a lot of recruitment through an agency from abroad in order to keep terms and conditions low and that if that recruitment was not available therefore the employer would be forced to improve terms and conditions or be forced to, to change the way in which they operate and so simply having macro data on this often doesn't address the anxiety within local communities so I don't think there's I think you're yes there does need to be challenging to, to misinformation we specifically put that as a recommendation in the report so we are very clear about the importance of doing that um, but um, uh, and we've also I mean look we're doing a wider report around hate crime at the moment as well which we're coming to the ends of and so we also argue very strongly about challenging prejudice challenging um, divisive rhetoric and language and um, uh, and discrimination as well but you also need to make sure that you have the proper robust analysis which looks at the kinds of things people are concerned about in terms of the local impact as well. Um, I was asking lots of questions, aren't I? Um, um, how, do you, how do we change the way that we make policy? So the other way we thought about the look, how's the budget process supposed to work in theory? I don't think it actually works like this in practice. But what was the theory behind the budget process? Is that you have a you originally that we started we used to have the autumn statement, which was supposed to actually be about consultation on measures for the budget. And so you would have the autumn statement would set out proposals for the budget. Then there would be a period of consultation and opportunity for public representations to take place, and then the treasury would set out its proposals in the budget. Uh, that's changed and mutated along the way and you now have a process where you have the OBR is, gives some transparency, gives some independence to the system so it's not just the Treasury marking its own homework so that you have uh, more robust evidence um, uh, as well as part of that debate but you also have opportunities and a timetable that everybody knows. Everybody knows what the timetable is in the run-up to the budget each year. This is when you can make your representations. This is the structure and the format. When I was the Chief Secretary to the Treasury I would often hear those sorts of budget representations from organisations across the country would come and have meetings and say this is what they wanted to see in the budget. We have no such process 
around immigration at all. So there's no process for organisations to put their views in, there's no timetable, there's no obvious consultation thing, and we think you should actually go further than the sort of process that there is for the budget and actually actively have local and public consultation opportunities. Local authorities should have a public consultation around their own integration policies and the sorts of things that they should be doing in particular areas. So in some areas it might be that the key concerns around immigration are all around housing or the private rented sector in an area. Well, what are they going to do? What's the opportunities to have public consultation as part of that? And for those local authority integration strategies to also be an annual strategy that then links to the annual migration report. So that's then brought together as part of a national integration strategy as well and draws on some of the recommendations that Louise Casey made. So um, that's, I think, how you would sort of change the process and the debate. And let's not pretend this is going to be easy. You know, there will always be differences, and there should rightly be differences of view and disagreements, but you at least provide a process by which you can actually have those discussions and those disagreements and those rows in a structured way and a structured constructive way that then leads to policies that stand a much better chance of being in the interests of the whole country than the process that we've got at the moment, which we think doesn't end up with the right kinds of policies that affect the whole country. Um, then, um, oh no, I can't read my handwriting. What did you put down as the third... Um, it was about the process and Brexit, uh, basically, and what, what do we do about that? But I think you've probably covered that. Oh, yes, that. no, I saw that question. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it was, uh, it was the, uh, the man who yeah, stuck his head around the, the door as well. Yes, about how you, yeah. how you move on and don't just become paralysed by the, the sort of still rerunning almost the debates from the referendum and how you move on to what kind of immigration yeah. system that we want to see for the future or what kind of um, future that we want. Well, I think what we were trying to do was to set out what, what the process would be to have that positive debate. Um, I think there's, look, inevitably the Brexit negotiations are the most important thing for all of us at the moment, so I don't think there's any way of um, uh, avoiding the fact that that is going to be a central issue for everybody for the next um, couple of years, but we did at least want to set out what a system would look like to have that wider debate as well. And then um, Jill's point about, is the Home Office the right um, department to, to lead this? Well, the Home Office ought to become so. And part of the challenge for the Home Office now, in their designing their registration system for EU citizens, and they've been honest with us about this, is this is a bit of a challenge for them because having their normal, their approach historically, to the, certainly for the last seven years, to the immigration system has been let us design a system which is all about reducing the number of people who are here by hook or by crook because the net migration target takes priority, we've got to meet it, and therefore, frankly, if we we delay somebody coming for another six months, even if we recognise that it's a, it's, it's, they should be here as part of the immigration system, well that helps with our numbers. So their entire approach has been about control, whereas actually with the EU citizens registration system, then it is about supporting and providing legal status for people who the government has said, we want to be here and we want to stay. So that is a challenge for them already. I think so the, the important thing is for the, the idea of having an annual migration report 
and saying it's got to have labour market analysis linked into it is in order to force that process and to make it a cross-government process rather than just a home office process. You have to involve CLG in integration debates. You have to involve the Bees Department and, and the Treasury in labour market analysis. You have to involve other departments in different aspects as well. This doesn't work if it's just seen as one narrow department's approach. It should be uh, more cross-cutting. But then, you know, all departments get sucked into the budget process inevitably, so it ought to be possible for all departments to be a part of a, a migration report process. On that note, we're going, to, we're going to have to draw to a close. Many thanks. Terrific questions. Can you join me in thanking Yvette Cooper?